This is Bonjour Chai, the Value and Values of Jewish Day School Edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here solo this week. Phoebe will be back with us next week, so I am your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, it is a back-to-school episode. I chat with Paul Bernstein, the head of Prisma, about the state of Jewish education heading into 5784. Before we get to that interview, though, I just want to let you know that the Great Canadian Sermon Slam is back. We are currently collecting sermons from rabbis to feature in an upcoming Sermon Slam episode. So if you know a rabbi, or you are one, and you'd like to submit a sermon for the Sermon Slam, email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca. Beth David Hebrew School is now accepting new students. One of Toronto's most dynamic, egalitarian, conservative congregations is offering personalized Hebrew lessons, hands-on learning, exciting field trips, and small group activities, all with a hot dinner included. This is Jewish exploration that will last your children a lifetime. Classes run weekly on Monday nights from 5 to 7.15 p.m. starting September 18th. To learn more and enroll, visit BethDavid.com or email Adina, that's A-D-I-N-A, at BethDavid.com. So September is upon us. School supplies are being purchased. Backpacks are being filled. Books are being covered. So that means it is time once again to take stock of Jewish day school, something which historically has been one of the pillars of Jewish communal life. With us to talk about this today is Paul Bernstein. He is the CEO of Prisma, the network for Jewish day schools in North America, and he joins us from New York. Paul, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Abi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I really enjoy your podcasts every time. Oh, thank you. Can you start by giving us an overview of what the landscape of Jewish day schools look like as we go into this new school year? Sure. The, the, the outlook for Jewish day schools and yeshivas is strong. Uh, during COVID, they did an exceptional job at continuing to educate, continuing to provide community, and continuing to do the very best they could for their students and all of their staff. And from that, families recognized that the day schools really are a tremendous part of our community and an important contribution to a student's life. And we enter the new school year, thank God, looking forward to what we hope will be a normal year, but a normal year of vibrant learning and great times together for the entire school community. I, I would assume that we have enough data by now. What, what are some of the long-term results that communities see from having day schools? What do communities with strong day schools have that others don't? The day school is really a backbone part of any Jewish community. One of the most tragic things you see if you want to start from the, if you like that, what happens without a day school is that a community that loses its day school or doesn't have a day school sometimes can really struggle to attract people who want to connect with Jewish life even, very importantly, Jewish leadership, such as rabbis, in order to operate their other functions. So one of the first things that day schools do is directly and indirectly bring leadership. In directly by producing well-educated, well-rounded, well-prepared, young, committed Jews who then disproportionately go on to lead the Jewish community in camps, in Hillel, in federations and other institutions throughout their lives. And indirectly, of course, by bringing together families and attracting the other leaders that a, that a, a community leads, a community needs in order to be strong. So essentially what you're saying is that um, if somebody 
is looking at a Jewish community and they don't see a day school, it sends a signal that they uh, that community is not as committed to Jewish life or to continuing Jewish life. And uh, by extension, the graduates of any given day schools tend to stay in the community, tend to reinvest a lot of their energies into the community and thereby be able to um, reinvigorate, keep the communities vibrant and, uh, and alive. I wouldn't say that not having a day school is a criticism of that community. Actually, the most common factor is the community tries incredibly hard to sustain a school and just simply can't manage it because the numbers aren't there. So it's not a reflection on the attitudes or leadership of the community. It is just an even greater struggle for that community when they don't have a day school than all the issues they might face otherwise. And the reality of that is 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 a proof point of the positive, which is when you have a day school or when you have day schools, it really does form part of the core of what makes our community strong. Now, not everybody becomes a leader after going through a Jewish day school. People who go through day schools, do they contribute in other ways to the community? Um, are there numbers on this? Do we see that people who go through day schools um, end up impacting communities in other ways? The impact of a Jewish day school on someone's future is is very broad. Okay. The give, fact that we give have, us some examples. The fact that we have the governor of the state of Pennsylvania, who is a proud day school alum and a day school parent. And will tell you how that influenced his life, not just Jewishly, but in terms of the leadership that he's assumed in the wider community, tells us a lot about the benefits you gain across your entirety as a person when you go through a day school. And we see that. So we see people's leadership manifest in multiple ways. There is the leadership directly in the Jewish community, but there is also the leadership that people take on in their careers. And that can manifest not just in the skills that they bring technically, but also the skills they bring as leaders. And also, we hope, the values that they bring to what they do personally and professionally, hoping that the deep Jewish learning that they have done in a Jewish day school influences their entire life. It's one of the most beautiful things to see when people are able to bring together an understanding of how their values manifest, not just when they sit in synagogue, but also when they are with their family and their friends, and also when they are uh, running whatever it is is in their professional lives. I'm glad you brought up values because it's something I've been thinking about a lot when it comes to day schools, um, you know, especially in the non-Orthodox world. Um, I'm, I'm starting to see that you know, values in schools have to appeal to a much broader audience, have to include a much wider set of values, which often then start becoming competing sets of values where one set of parents goes and says, this is what I believe is should be taught Jewishly. Another set of parents say, this is what I believe is the, you know, Jewish approach. Um, what is going on with pluralistic schools? Um, is it harder actually to transmit values in these settings? Um, are there schools that are doing this properly? Um, am I off base? Am I seeing the wrong things? Um, help me help me walk through this idea of like values within uh, Jewish day schools. There are multiple aspects to that. The first, of course, is that Jewish learning offers us an incredible array of values and an incredible number of things we can learn that we can then apply to our lives 
Uh, and and to really get those, you have to keep learning, not just when you're in school, not just when you are doing other activities like camp, but throughout your life. Uh, so the, the tools that our Jewish learning gives us from a values perspective is immense. The second thing is that an excellent school is there to not just to teach facts and content, but to teach both a way of learning and openness to different perspectives and uh, different ideas and a way of interacting with initially your fellow students, but of course, ultimately your fellow people more generally. So a great education actually is equipping you for those things. At the same time, we live in a world that is becoming increasingly fractious, increasingly divided by um, often partisan issues and where people are finding it harder to communicate constructively across those divides. Those realities do affect day schools and day school communities like they do in other places. So in any Jewish day school, it isn't just a question of non-Orthodox day schools. In any Jewish day school, you experience diversity and disagreement, and we function in a world where handling that diversity is incredibly hard. Um, what we see most effectively is when schools have built over a very long period of time a really strong community. If you go back to the COVID experience, for example, one of the reasons why schools in general struggled is because um, there wasn't enough connection, community with uh, among the faculty, the parents, and the students. And as a result of that, you don't have sufficient trust. I was, I was literally about to say that, that it sounds like there's a lack of trust there, yeah. Trust is a very, very central piece. And one of the things that we saw at times where, when in, in those um, first six months of COVID and so many schools were struggling even to operate online for reasons that went beyond resources, it was often about communication and relationships. And Jewish day schools did an incredibly great and good job, and most of them went back in person way sooner than than uh, the vast majority of other schools. Central to that was the fact you had trust within the faculty and staff of the school and between the school team and the parents because they had built community over a long period of time. So there's no simple answer to the fractious world we live in, and we all need to work incredibly hard to encourage diverse viewpoints and encourage effective and constructive communication. I think that Jewish day schools have the tools to, to keep growing in that area and to handle more situations that might be possible in other environments. Um, and it's something that I know our school leaders are incredibly committed to, to working on. If I can try to reframe that. So it sounds like what you're saying is if... Um you have diversity, we're going to have diversity of views on abortion, let's say, or on gender uh, issues. Um, before we even get to that, we should be looking at the issues that divide us within the community and trust ourselves and say, well, we should be able to come up with a comprehensive policy on kosher that everybody trusts in and believes in for the school. Um, and if we're able to work through that, we should be able to work through many, many other issues as well. I think there are a number, there are different 
approaches. There are policies uh, and, for example... Well, but but I guess what I'm choosing, I think about the kosher thing as like, you know, it shouldn't be political. And yet you have parents that I'm sure are very strictly kosher in pluralistic schools. And you have parents that are very much not and that believe in not keeping kosher as a value um, for whatever reason. Um, a school should be able to navigate that within the school and also without the school, outside the school. So the, the, there's the two aspects of it. One is your ability to navigate disagreement. So the process of managing when that disagreement happens. But the second is the clear, well-articulated, well-communicated set of values or guiding principles that your school lives by. So if the school chooses a particular kashrut policy based on its own religious and community views, if it articulates it, communicates it, often if it explains why it has the particular view it has well to families, there are going to be certain families who will disagree with that, but that's actually about the guiding principles of the school. And as a, as a parent, I choose to opt in to what that school's values and principles are or not. But at least if it's clear and well communicated, I know what I'm buying into, whether, it is my, whether it's what I would personally do or not. It's one of those things that, um, you know, I've seen a shift within day schools from the model where the parents are on the education committee and on the various board, um, you know, disc level discussions to discuss these types of things. And you have all of this parent input to sort of say, we are the parent body and this is what we want to say. And then schools are shifting back and forth depending on the parent body versus what you seem to be saying right now is that schools are moving more towards uh, the consumer model. Right. They are creating a product. They're being very transparent about it, hopefully, and saying, this is what the school is. You can either buy into it or not. The parents may well have a role in defining what the school is. I'm not saying the parents have no sure. role to yeah, play. Yeah. <laughs> but it is it's 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 about saying that for the things that are matters of principle or matters of value, be really clear about them. And not wishy-washy. This is our policy. And, then not, yeah. and not wishy-washy, exactly. And also some of, the, you know, some of the most successful schools are the ones that also make sure that they are consistent in the way they apply them. Because honestly, it's true. There are times when it has felt to some people that a more influential family gets a different approach from a less influential family. And of course, that, that creates division within the community. So schools are really trying to, that are doing, schools that are doing this well will really be trying to be clear and then apply those values and principles that fit what their school is. I had uh, an interesting conversation last week with a day school administrator uh, in a U.S. city who was telling me that they face increasing pressure um, to start having non-Jewish students come in. There are, um, it's a pluralistic uh, community day school. Uh, there are people that are seeing it as a wonderful school saying, this is great. My kids are friends with your kids because of soccer, because of various other after-school activities. Uh, I'd like to come to your school. And neither parent is Jewish, and they're okay with learning the Jewish values that this school is teaching um, and are not asking for any sort of accommodations. What does, how does that fit in with our discussion of values with the Jewish community? Should we be opening it up to everybody? Should we be saying anybody can take part in Jewish learning? One of the most fascinating questions we've grappled with in building Prisma as the network for Jewish day schools is the diversity of those schools. 
and the fact they have very different religious beliefs, they have very different views about who to admit, and you're you are talking about one of those core questions. So the re- the answer isn't anything that will apply everywhere. The answer is very specific to certain contexts. And I've sat through conversations among different schools, one of them talking about the fact that they felt obli- obliged to open up to non-Jewish students uh, as an economic factor. They're in a very small community. And what they were talking about was what does it mean for the culture of the schools when I have a mixed population like that? Uh, and my answer to that question comes back to the same issue that we've spoken about in terms of if you really understand and are clear about your values, and actually I would add to that, if you're clear about your vision for the school and what it means not just to be a day school but to be a Jewish day school, then once again, the, fam- the non-Jewish families, if you choose to admit them, are buying into your values. And obviously you have to express them in a way that is appropriate to their lives since they are not going to be expected to practice in a way Mm -hmm. that um, that Jewish kids might be. And the same thing is true across the spectrum of what we deal with. In a conversation I was once in exactly about this question, another school which happened to be from a much larger community, it was in South Florida, a larger Orthodox school was talking about what's the impact on the culture that actually expressed as the hashkafa of the school because in south florida schools increase have increasing numbers of families coming from latin america among their population it's not a jewish non-jewish question but it's all about what's the culture of the school Mm -hmm. and it starts from values and it starts from vision and then it builds out into a really careful, sensitive thinking about how we live the values and vision in the context of inevitably changing demographics that we experience. What it highlighted for me uh, as a question um, or as a discussion point was that all of a sudden it crystallized the basic you know, polarities. And it, I know that it's not polar, but on one pole, when it comes to Jewish learning, when it comes to Jewish day school, um, a lot of people say it's the learning, right? I can't, I, my kid needs to learn about Jewish, uh, you know, information, knowledge, wisdom, Talmud, Tanakh, uh, Jewish not, w- values, history, all of these things. And I can't teach it. So I, my kid is going to go to a Jewish day school. And on the other hand, you have parents who basically say, it doesn't matter. I don't care what they're learning in the school. I want them to be in a Jewish culture. I want them to be around Jewish students, right? So on the one hand, if you have non-Jewish student, I don't care if they're learning something that is Jewish or not, you know, that's fine, right? It's okay. But for the cultural piece, it becomes all of a sudden fundamental. Is this a school where my kid will only meet other Jews and therefore hopefully, you know, okay. maintain that continuity or whatever we want to discuss the, the, the big words that we did that have yet to be, uh, you know, mentioned. Um, but it really highlighted so much for me that this is where we're, we're sitting in terms of Jewish uh, learning. Um, and again, it's not one to the exclusion of the other, but um, it's, uh, very often, you know, an important piece for that. It comes down to the fact that we live as Jews in a with a holistic view of the world. I mean, even if you go back to the fundamental text of the Shema, where it talks about teaching to your children, it doesn't say sit down with your children with a book and teach them. It's when you rise up, when you sit down, when you go mm-hmm. in, when you go out. It's about your whole life. Yep. Teaching to your children, meaning it's not an academic exercise, it's a whole life exercise. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. 
Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Are we seeing some of the antagonism between parents and schools that we have been seeing in other outside of school, uh, in non-Jewish day schools or non-Jewish schools uh, in general? Um, are are good, the the right schools are the ones that are trying to create this harmony, as you're saying, or are we actually seeing schools uh, in the Jewish day school movement where there is a lot of discord between the parents and the and the educators? Discord happens, as I said, we're not immune from the trends that exist in the wider world. And it may not necessarily be about creating harmony in the sense of a homogenous single view, because that may not be either desirable or possible. It's about mm-hmm. our ability to coexist to converse, to be side by side in a respectful way as parents and as those inside the school on a day-to-day basis as well. Um, and what, what we see is some very effective behaviors on that within day schools. We see times when it doesn't work so well, like in the wider world. And we also see times when actually things are working pretty well, but the glory of WhatsApp or social media is that something can be blown up Mm-hmm. In we've quite seen that in Canadian day schools way. as well. Absolutely, we see. I mean, I, I would say we see that across the US and Canada. We stand, and of course, the rest of the world is experiencing this too. And we see that in other sectors. Uh, you know, when I talk, for example, with camp directors or Hillel directors, you know, they are very aware of the positives that can come with social media and and things like WhatsApp, and also sometimes the destructive behaviors that are possible as well. Yeah, it's fascinating because you have so many educators that sit there and talk often about and schools talk about the dangers of social media. And yet they're the first ones out there with Instagram accounts and communications directors that are posting first day of school videos and back to school. And and there's a recognition that it's inevitable that you have this while still also creating this paradox of telling kids, don't do this. It's not very good for you. Yeah, these tools anyways, these yeah. tools are there and are, are there and can be used positively and sure. you know I I've personally been part of WhatsApp groups that a lot of the time are incredibly helpful. Uh, I I had a, a one of my children was uh, was on that gap year in Israel last year and of course when you're in Israel things happen and it's very helpful when the organization is able to communicate in real time to let you know for example that all of their participants are safe and on that same WhatsApp group and something happened that one family was unhappy about, that family can broadcast it to the entire group in ways that that didn't happen before we had these tools. You mentioned schools and Hillel's. Um, What is the rest of the landscape looking like these days in terms of supplemental schools, Sunday schools, Hebrew school, afternoon schools, summer camp? Um, Where do those fit in when... I assume you think that day school is the ideal for every Jewish student uh, or for most every Jewish student. Um, Where does the supplemental Jewish education fit in? um, And where do we say, you know what, actually, you're an ideal person. You don't belong necessarily in Jewish day school. You belong elsewhere um, while still getting a Jewish education from certain places. I think the research shows that the best experience, if we're looking for the best experience, is actually a combination 
The kids okay. who go to day school, go to camp, become counselors at camp, participate in Hillel, become leaders in Hillel, or any combination of those, end up more involved, more committed, and looking back on their experiences in the most positive ways because they bring different things to your life. And as you go through, for example, when you become a camp counselor, you are using everything that you accumulated as a camper and as a day school student over all of those years. So actually, it's, it's very much a combination. And we work very closely with our colleagues at the Foundation for Jewish Camp and at Hillel International because we believe in the, uh, the complementary nature of, of the activities, as well as increasingly what we, we, we work, we think about day schools as a center of community. And as a center of community, they should have ever stronger relationships with the other organizations in the community. So for example, schools and synagogues working together is a really powerful a really powerful thing. My own shul had a youth Shabbat where they, where they they serve all of the youth, whether they go to public schools, independent schools, or Jewish day schools, bring them all together. But part of that is actually bringing in the leadership of the local Jewish day schools to be part of the conversation, part of the learning, part of the fun. Mm -hmm. So partnership between our different institutions is is incredibly important. They each have a different role to play. There are always going to be families who don't want to send their kid to a Jewish day school or to a Jewish camp. And, and the way that we work together to provide the best possible opportunities, I think, is, is what we need for the entire community. I've had a theoretical disagreement with my wife for years. I know I've asked other educators in the past uh, about this, even on the show, I believe. Um, you must get people who say, you know, um, I'm going to send my kid either to a Jewish elementary school or a Jewish high school. Uh, I can't afford to send it for either. We'll get to the funding, you know, shortly. Um, if you have to pick between sending your kid to a Jewish elementary school, a K through six, K through eight, or a Jewish high school, do you find that there is a clear winner one way or another? There's there's interesting research that shows the specific value of a high school. Yes, yes. I always say this. I can, because, I'm so glad to hear. <laughs> because of the... Because of the time of life and what it is to yep. be a teen and the really critical moment you are at, yep. I actually am a product of an elementary school, Jewish day school education, and then I went uh, mm -hmm. somewhere else after that. And from my point of view, the foundational learning, the experiences of everything from Kiddush in school on a, you know, the mock Kiddush on a Friday or a, or a mock Seder that we did before Pesach or before Passover... They are crucial foundational experiences that go deep into my soul, mm -hmm. if you like. And I'm not sure research can measure that so easily. So I would, I would argue a yes and. I hear. <laughs> I think you get different things from those experiences. Um, uh, and, and, and we totally respect when people are making a choice, for, sure. for example, to start to do the early years or, or, or to focus on the high school years. And yet, even though it's an experience I personally didn't have, seeing my children graduate, having been all the way from K through 12th grade in day school, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And the things that they know and experience and are deep within them are way beyond what I think I got from my day school, my yeah. more limited day school I, experience. I, I've really believed that if you... Um, if you care about Jewish learning, then 
uh, a lot of the learning that happens in K through eight can often be done at home, whereas the level of learning that you learn in high school, right, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the advanced Tanakh that you're learning, and the values that you are able to discuss with a high school student is is so much deeper than most parents are able to do, and that the values there, combined with the gap that you have of only two months between a Jewish high school and and a, and a Hillel, um, means that it's often more likely that a student will then walk into a Hillel right away, as opposed to having a a five year gap. Um, between their Jewish learning and their university life. I don't know if we have the data for that, but there's something interesting about what you're saying about the relationship between school and home Mm -hmm. and the learning that goes on in both. And and, and of course, both are are essential to a child's development, not least because the learning is not just about knowledge, it's about deep experience. living it, yeah. You know, the kiddush has to be, kiddush you do in school has to be reinforced by the one you're doing at home as well. Exactly. As you can tell from my accent, I didn't grow up in North America um, and lived in uh, the United Kingdom uh, until actually my children were in in their early years. And uh, by chance, my wife was working for the Federation on Education Issues, and particularly on lifelong education issues. At the time, and this was in the early 2000s, enrollment in Jewish day schools in the UK was growing rapidly. And one of the things that they were seeing is that parents were feeling lost because they were suddenly their children were learning things that they couldn't share with their children because they didn't have that background and they didn't have the knowledge mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. So there is. So it's not, unfortunately, not every family is equipped to provide the sort of depth of Jewish learning that a Jewish day school can provide, sure. which is why it's a yes and home and school. And also, by the way, emphasizes the importance of community because the parents can gain from what their children are getting in a Jewish day school as well. Yeah, I've always told uh, parents, like I've seen this happen in some schools that work really, really well with this, that um, have parent education nights where the parents are learning what the students are learning as well so they can have these conversations at home. And if your school doesn't have that, you should, you know, be going to the school and insisting on, you know, providing something like that so that you can have real meaningful conversations with your kids um, at 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 home. And uh, I think it's different than, you know, calculus or AP, uh, Western Civ, you know, whatever it might be that um, if you don't know about it, you know, you can have your kid talk to you about it and and learn with them. But, but it's not the same level, I think, in terms of, as we were talking about values, right, if you're not able to talk about the values that you're insisting that your kid learns in school, um, then there's something that's going to be missing about it. And, and your kids are bringing it back to you. And, it, and yep. in addition to the values and the knowledge, they're bringing the joy. When a mm-hmm. child comes home on a Friday and says, parents, can we please make kiddush? Because I had such fun at kiddush in, uh, in school. Then that encourages the family to adopt practices sure. that maybe have become lost a little bit sure. as, as society evolves. All right. So the the elephant in the room is going to be the uh, is funding, right? Um, all of this doesn't come cheap. Um, it is often as expensive, if not more expensive, to send a kid to Jewish day school than it is to the nicest prep schools in whatever city you're in. I, I once had a uh, head of school that was talking to me, or uh, it was a senior administrator in one of the schools that I was teaching in, who used to say that uh, if you have two kids in Jewish education, it's like buying a Lexus every year and pushing it off a cliff. 
right? Hopefully you get some value out of it, not just throwing a Lexus, <laughs> but, but it, it has become crushingly expensive often for many, many people and scholarships often don't go all the way. Um, what are some of the funding models that are working? Um, where do we need to be moving? In which direction do we need to be moving to make this a reality for anybody that wants it? The good news is that you're not throwing that Lexus off the cliff. It's that yeah, there is a return on that investment. Um, over, over a very long period yeah. of time and very, and that very deep as we've been talking about. Um, the, the One of the most interesting dynamics when you talk about affordability, which is a very big issue for, uh, for more and more families, is that there's another side to that, which is value. One of the things that we experienced as a result of, uh, of what happened during COVID is that there were families that came to Jewish day schools because the Jewish day schools were in person at times when other schools weren't. Uh, and, and we were able to offer that service to them. And they were families often that had chosen otherwise uh, before that. They'd send their kids somewhere else before, often to public school. So we, Prisma did a study of those families to try and understand what they were thinking. We did it at a time when other schools were beginning to reopen in 2021, and we, we assumed the families that had come would just go bad. And those families told us the reasons why they hadn't chosen a day school pre-COVID, and, often, and affordability was one of those factors. What we found after they had that experience in a day school was in effect they fell in love, and they realized just how strong the education was, how strong the community is, how some of the things they assumed like the population is too homogenous actually weren't true. And their view of the value of day schools increased, which meant in reality that three years later, more than 70% of those families were still enrolled in day schools. So they found ways to overcome their previous concerns about affordability because they saw greater value. So that is one part of it, which is people need to understand the value of a day school to know that it's actually a worthwhile investment in their child's future. And affording a day school is an incredible challenge and a huge commitment for any family. And one of the biggest dynamics we've seen in, in recent years is how middle-income families who previously thought they were fine, they were doing okay, they earned well above the median salary, for example, um, actually found that it was a struggle and, and asking for help was not something that, that those families thought they would have to do in their, in their lives. And that's been incredibly hard for a lot of people. For decades, schools have done as the best they can possibly do for low-income families to make sure they have access, but it was the middle where it was getting harder and harder. So that's where a lot of the investments are going to create models that are fair, to create models that really address the needs of those families. So some of them, for example, will say, well, no family, no matter how many children they have in a day school, should pay more than a certain percentage of their annual income in tuition. Because we recognize that, of course, everyone has other commitments mm -hmm. to make, and we will give tuition assistance in order to try keep them below whatever we deem to be the uh, the right uh, percentage, and they're, so they're creating these these better models and and frankly more transparent models. Because one of the issues about affordability is that traditionally you have to put yourself through a an incredibly difficult 
and sometimes embarrassing process of exposing all of your financials. Yeah, a bit like you do for when you uh, in in the United States when you do FAFSA for college, and it's mm -hmm. a very difficult process for families to go through. And trying to create more respectful, really more welcoming processes is as, as important as the dollars that we offer in order to help families there. And the last thing I'll say on this is that many community, many individual schools are sometimes, and it's even better when it's whole communities, are putting an enormous effort into um, raising funds to support tuition assistance. Mm -hmm. One example is the Generations Trust in Toronto, which really has raised a large amount of money because philanthropists in the community see the importance of day schools and is investing in how to increase access for middle-income families um, in the uh, among the Toronto elementary schools, and it's a it's a very bold, very powerful experience, and one that other communities are now trying to emulate. So between that and Tannenbaum Chat, I believe also is one of yeah. the uh, bright stars uh, yeah. in the Prisma world in terms of what they've been doing with their tuition assistance programs, but. What I've seen, if I can push back just a little bit, um, is that we're relying increasingly and increasingly on major donors and major gifts for these types of tuition assistance programs. Um, and is that really viable in the long term? Or do we, uh, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to have to rely on the community. Um, but at some point, um, if we are always relying on major gifts, um, is there something that's going to inevitably collapse under that weight Um and make the whole system not viable anymore. There are actually a number of parts. The first one actually is is what you're referring when you mentioned Tannenbaum Chat and and the Kadima School in Los Angeles is another example of this, which is schools that did two things. One, they really invested in and prioritized excellence, and the second is they reduced the cost of tuition significantly. Those two things must go together. If you just reduce the price, you don't do anything about it since you're not going to attract the families. Tanamount it's not quality. Because it's not quality. Both schools, Kadima and Tanamount Chad, have increased their enrollment very substantially. And, and of course, the, the, uh, the, as, you, as you grow towards capacity, your average cost goes down. So actually, it becomes more affordable because mm -hmm. the marginal cost of each student in certain circumstances is lower than lower than the average. So that is the first piece, which is how you optimize quality and uh, and the level of tuition. The um, uh, the second piece is the community investment. Uh, one of the things that is is um, so uh, interesting to us is first when we look at the proportion of community funding that goes to Jewish education. I won't even talk specifically about Jewish day schools right now. But the funding that goes to Jewish education and going back to that experience in the UK where enrollment increased very substantially, one of the first actions they took to create that momentum, and it was led um, uh, by, uh, by Rabbi Sachs when he was the chief rabbi, was to convince the philanthropic community to invest more and a larger, to invest more and to invest a larger slice of the pie, if you like, in Jewish education as opposed to in other places, because often Jewish education is under-resourced overall in the philanthropic mix. We also at a moment when, of course, there's a lot of conversation around the baby boomer generation and the amount of wealth 
that exists and is about to be passed on. So actually, I don't think we've tapped out. No, but in 20 years, we we will. And and that's what I'm worried about, you know, or 20. So the key to that one, before, before I move on to the third area, the key to that one is how we build not just funding for today, but funding for the long term. So Prisma is working Endowments. on Endowments. Yeah. how we build endowments uh, much more strongly in our community and how we continue to invest in them. Often when we talk about endowments, people sort of say, well, Harvard, Yale, they've got billions. We're never going to get to that. And of course, Harvard and Yale didn't have billions when they started and they took several hundred years to build them. We have to believe in our future and then invest in those endowments to make them possible. The third area, really important, which of course varies according to which country in and where you are within that country, which province in Canada, which state in the United States, is government funding. And government funding is a very real opportunity and is being used in different ways. Um, uh, At the, 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 the higher ends, you have examples like Quebec, where there is direct government funding, of course, mm-hmm. that supports I'm, I'm in Quebec and I see it every day. Uh, or in certain states in the United States, most recently and most publicly, Florida, that have really increased access to funding for private schools, which is something that not everyone is, is comfortable with. But there are areas of funding that are available for things like security, for things like the special needs of diverse learners, um, for things like poverty in, in uh, free school meals, that um, that schools can access, in many cases do access and increasingly should be accessing because we're not using everything that's available. And we should be making the case for more funds to be available in whichever state or at the federal level, or whichever province or the, at the national level yeah, in the US it, and Canada. I, I find it fascinating because on the one hand, it boggles my mind why people don't move to places because of the increased funding to Jewish day schools. You know, Quebec has one of some of the lowest day school rates in all of North America, and yet you don't see this influx of people coming in. And they're, oh, because of the French, and I have to deal with this, and I have to deal with that. And I'm like, but you care so much about Jewish learning and Jewish day school for your kids. You should be the first ones in line to come to Quebec or to Florida or to other places. Um, and on the other hand, though, um, when it's done improperly, I, I see um, so many Jewish day schools, uh, especially often in the, but not limited to the Haredi world, that say, you know, we have this, you know, resources uh, available to us um, from the public sector, we're going to scrape every possible dollar out of that, and sometimes in ways that are, you know, less than uh, wonderful based on the values that we're teaching. And so, you know, having these public funds can sometimes be difficult. But what's going on in Quebec is um, definitely part of what's going on in Quebec is definitely part of the model that we are um, wishing happened elsewhere. Um, And, you know, I think that, as you're saying, that we do need to create these endowments. We do have to be thinking of much more long-term. I happen to be of the opinion that um, part of that long-term strategy is getting everybody to pay for it. Uh, I know that there are some communities that do this, and I wish there were more. Uh, I don't know if you have a comment on that, where um, it becomes a tax on every federation dollar, or every synagogue membership, whatever it might be, that there's a day school line item in every donation that you have, so that people see, even though they don't have kids in Jewish day school, they are still benefiting from it, because it is a public good, as we spoke about at the very beginning of this. But that's one of the most powerful issues in relation to how much is being invested in Jewish education is to recognize how the entire community gains from it, that it is a public good, exactly as you say. 
There was a really interesting article in Tablet written by Mark Oppenheimer a few months ago, trying to make the case for... Very well aware of it, yes. (laughs) Free day schools. You know, it's very powerful what Mark has to say and a conversation that we should be having. Paul, it's been wonderful. Um, On that note, I think we can't possibly um, end it in a more more succinct way. Um, It's been great to have you on and uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Amit. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 2nd. Shabbat Parashat Kitavo. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners and as always you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca i'm avi feingold thanks for listening jewish comedy legend modi and hasidic rapper nisim black are coming to toronto to perform live at uja's campaign launch on september 7th visit jewishtoronto.com to get your tickets today don't miss modi and nisim black on september 7th go to jewishtoronto.com for your ticket today